Welcome back to A Push for Understanding. This is the fourth section of the AP test review, and it's over the Theodore Roosevelt era or the Progressive era. And this era is really good for uh, cause and effect because uh, this has a lot of change, especially in the second half of this era, which I'll go over. Um, and that change comes from a lot of big societal problems and a lot of big societal worries that people have. So uh, the biggest one is monopolies. It's kind of the centerpiece of progressive hatred. Um, and that really starts to rise up with Henry Ford and Rockefeller, who are ultra-wealthy ultra businessmen. Henry Ford created the Ford car, imagine, I know. And Henry Ford had standardized oil. And both of these men had monopolies, uh, trust bus, or trust, uh, just trusts, sorry, um, and were extremely wealthy businessmen uh, who were able to succeed during the 1890s through industrialization. Um, the main way they succeeded was through horizontal and vertical integration. That was one of our buzzwords. And I bet none of uh, none of you remember what that meant. So uh, horizontal integration means that companies would become one, which would mean in the case of, say, a car manufacturer, you'd buy out a bunch of other car manufacturers um, to try and have a standardized set so you're not competing against each other and vertical integration is combining the processes so if you are again making cars you might buy steel mills you might buy uh, tire making factories uh, you might buy uh, steering wheel factories right um, and basically combining all these pieces together so that you control the entire assembly line and can basically sell yourself um, the parts needed to make the car and then sell the car um, and so those were the two types of integrations that made these wealthy businessmen. Um, and then we have some sort of social ideas, two social ideas, uh, coming out of these wealthy men. Uh, we have social Darwinism, which is that the rich uh, got rich because they were destined to. They uh, kind of developed um, some sort of attribute, uh, and the, that the best people will rise to the top in the economy, just like um, how the theory of evolution and survival of the fittest work. And then we also have, mainly out of Andrew Carnegie, uh, we have the Gospel of Wealth, which says that if you have a lot of money, uh, you got that money off of the community, and therefore you should invest back into that community when you have so much wealth. Um, and it really uh, develops into a lot of charities and charitable donations coming from wealthy businessmen back towards that community um, when it worked. Uh, I don't really think the gospel of wealth really lives on to this day. I think a lot of businessmen just keep the money for themselves. Um, so because all these people are getting so rich, um, the middle class is kind of upset because they're not getting rich. And so they form unions, uh, most notably uh, the Knights of Labor and the American Federation of Labor. Um, they both create unions. Um, and they fight for workers' rights, better worker wages, better worker equality, better worker standards. Um, and they're able to make some gains, but not necessarily a lot of gains, mainly because um, the federal government takes the side of businesses more often than it takes the side of workers. And that is very easily seen in uh, three strikes I have, uh, the Haymarket strike, Pullman strike, and Homestead strike. All three of these strikes involved protesters, um, or strikers fighting for better wages, better working conditions, better equality, better uh, wage equality in their work fields, and they ended up 
in absolute chaos in Haymarket. Uh, police fired on a crowd of protesters, and an anarchist uh, ended up throwing a bomb in the middle of the protesters. In the Pullman strike, uh, transportation stopped uh, for weeks in 27 states as uh, strikers fought for better wages. And in the Homestead strike, wages were cut, which led to a standoff between hired guards and strikers um, with shots being fired. So, um, absolute chaos in the United States, and people are really fighting against the ultra-elite and the top 1% for that money um, that they're being exploited for um, by these rich Americans. Um, and people are also very upset about uh, tenements, uh, which are the uh, poor inner-city um, low-income housing that a lot of people are forced to live in, especially uh, immigrants, especially Irish immigrants or Italian immigrants um, coming from their respective countries. And it really just shows how the top 1% can live in, you know, such big mansions and uh, live the, a life of luxury while their workers end up living in uh, some of the worst living conditions, uh, admittedly, in the United States ever. And so that is kind of the first half of the Roosevelt era, which is a lot of problems. And as you can see, there's kind of a lot of problems, a lot of uh, systemic problems, a lot of problems we still see today. And so um, there's kind of this push for change in at the beginning of the 1900s, um, and it leads to both a populist movement and a progressive movement. So first is the progressive movement, which kind of pops up towards the later half of the 1890s and then well into the 1900s which starts with the People's Party, which is kind of a populist or populism movement, begins uh, gaining traction, especially with farmers who are kind of exploited by uh, the federal government and have had their wages, well, not wages, but their income re uh, reduced, especially because um, they have to go into debt at the beginning of the season, and then oftentimes their debt is harder to pay off by the end of the season through inflation. And so the People's Party sees a big rise. I think they end up winning about uh, like 20% of the popular vote when they first uh, become prominent. And then eventually they begin to die off because populism is uh, kind of a failed ideology. <laughs> um, it can only go so far because populism at its core is just appealing to as many people as possible. And that means you get a lot of um, people who don't agree with each other, and you get a lot of elected officials who are so deeply divided on issues that they can't really work together and compromise. Um, however, uh, we have Coxney's army, which, uh, due to a economic recession in the uh, 1890s, a big army of strikers and just um, kind of blue-collar workers, um, rise up and lead a march on Washington, trying to beg Congress for more financial aid and more federal involvement in the economy and more help uh, for the middle class, who have been really suffering at this point. And then, uh, finally, we have muckrakers who expose problems in society and uh, kind of just, uh, well, they're muckrakers, so they are exposed, they are raking the muck of society, the worst parts of society, and exposing them because they are journalists. Um, and so, by the way, when I said finally, I didn't mean that was the end. I mean, finally, uh, as the end of the populist movement comes in, we have the beginning of the progressive movement. Again, with the muckrakers exposing things, uh, pop or not populism, uh, progressive, 
progressivism uh, begins to pop up, and people are really angry at really whatever the muckrakers are exposing that week. So we get uh, four new constitutional amendments. We get the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th amendments, uh, which are actually really good evidence and really solid evidence uh, for an AP test if you need to write, uh, if you need to bring in any outside evidence during the progressive era. So the 16th Amendment uh, brings in the graduated income tax, which basically means that uh, people who make more money are taxed at a higher rate than people who make less money. Seems pretty simple. A pretty radical idea from the 1910s, 1920s. Um, and this was mainly due to an argument in society that says, um, you know, we've become so deeply interlocked and, you know, you can't really be a self-made man anymore because... I mean, if you think about a city, everybody in a city is working towards improving the city. So um, if you are able to succeed and able to find uh, self or self gain, um, you deserve that gain to be spread out um, by the government to the rest of the people. Uh, we get the 17th election or the 17th Amendment, sorry, which uh, is the direct election of senators due to um, kind of protests against um, kind of the wealthy elite, uh, senators being appointed by their own parties and their own state, um, their own state officials. So uh, next we have the 18th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, the 19th Amendment uh, was the start of prohibition, um, basically banned alcohol and the sale of alcohol in the United States, uh, which was kind of a disaster for the Burkhazov era, um, and uh, kind of destroys their reputation as prohibition goes on. But anyway, some more um, progressive era politics is initiative, referendum, primary, recall, which are all big fun words that basically are just election reform. You have initiative, uh, you can put initiatives on the ballot, and if they get a popular, um, or if they get more than 50% of uh, the people voting for it, then it passes uh, without the need of a state legislator or Congress voting for it. A referendum, basically the same thing, except if you get 50%, it doesn't do anything, it just signals support for something uh, for congressmen to act. Uh, we have primaries, uh, the direct election of um, people in, during their primary systems. Basically, um, the parties aren't choosing people. The people are choosing uh, the elected officials who they uh, vote for in the eventual general election. And then finally, we have recall, which basically means that if enough of a state uh, votes to uh, remove the governor or remove a state official, um, the state official is removed. So um, just some uh, very basic uh, kind of political tools uh, made for the people to use against elected officials and to fight against corruption at the time. Uh, next, we have Ro uh, Roosevelt's trust busting campaign, where he breaks up a lot of um, trusts um, and basically tries to break up these rich men's trusts, trusts and banks, uh, which are able to make them enormous amounts of money while skirting by U.S. tax code. And then finally, we have the beginning of uh, kind of the withdrawal of American isolationism. We have the bombing or the explosion of the USS Maine, which is allegedly done um, by Spain. So we blame the Maine on Spain. I think that's like the third time I've said that during my podcast. So, you know, 
it's a good, it's a good rhyme though. It's a good rhyme though. <laughs> uh, so that brings the United States into the Spanish-American War and begins United States imperialism. We take uh, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Cuba, uh, as well as Guam and uh, I believe American Samoa. So uh, that kind of is the beginning of American withdrawal from isolationism. Then we go back into it. Then we come back out of it uh, with Roosevelt's culinary. Which basically says, uh, it basically renews the Monroe Doctrine, says that if Europeans try and get involved in the Americans and try and pressure American or other American countries like Canada, like Mexico, like Guatemala, like Cuba, um, we're going to get involved and we're going to stop um, imperialism on behalf or on behalf of other countries uh, in our sphere or sphere of influence. Yeah. Um, then we have these two emerging ideas coming out of this era, which is idealism and realism. Idealism is really the idea that American foreign policy or that American policy can be transferred over to foreign policy. That America could, uh, you know, install democracy in a country and say, uh, "You're a democracy now, and you're not going to have to worry about that." It doesn't work like that. Uh, which is why it's called idealism. We were very idealistic at the beginning of this time, basically trying to Christianize or civilize um, other countries like the Philippines, um, and just try and spread American democracy and capitalism to the rest of the world. Um, and then realism is just a more realistic foreign policy. I feel like that's pretty simple to explain. Just America is able to see how um, their foreign policy is limited and how they can't just do whatever they want. Um, not always used, <laughs> especially not during the progressive era. Uh, we were very idealistic then. We're very idealistic now. Really, America is a pretty idealistic nation when it comes to foreign policy. And then finally, uh, after America's involvement of World War One, which surprisingly didn't have many important buzzwords, uh, we have Wilson's 14 points. Uh, which is uh, Wilson, which Wilson proposes after well Wilson proposes to get us into the war, and then Wilson uh, brings to the Treaty of Versailles uh, to try and uh, spread some American influence, some American ideology uh, into Europe and into Asia. Uh, it goes pretty horribly, actually. Uh, Thirteen of his points are <laughs> pretty much ignored by everybody, and then his last point is the League of Nations which the United States does not end up joining because Wilson has a stroke as he's campaigning, and he's unable to get the United States to join uh, the League of Nations, which is honestly not that big of a deal because the League of Nations was a failure from the beginning and is unable to stop Hitler's rise in Europe. And so that's the end of the Progressive Era, and it was very quick. It's only been about 15 minutes, and I just shoved like 30 years of insane chaos and change. Um, probably need to slow it down, actually. I don't know why I'm putting this at the end of the video. Um, but yeah, so the Roosevelt era or the Progressive Era can really be summarized as cause and effect, uh, like with, say, the Haymarket Revolt, where police fire on protesters and an anarchist uh, blows up protesters. Uh, we get the Knights of Labor and the American Federation kind of growing in power and unions uh, becoming more important in the United States. And so I'd say this era is very good uh, if you need to write anything about cause and effect. Um, and it's very good to show changes over time, how America uh, can change between the
the uh, 19th century and the 20th century, and how American can change, American ideology can change so quickly when it comes to foreign policy, with uh, you know America being so interested in declaring war on Spain, and then about five years later being completely isolationist and not wanting to even get involved in their own colonies, which they owned. So, um, time period is, uh, pretty good, actually. <laughs> um, and I'd say it's, uh, it's, it's a very useful time period, uh, for pretty much, uh, every part of the, uh, AP test. So I hope you learned something new and I hope you'll come back for the next episode. Bye.